Luke, <clears throat> Luke 1 doesn't start with Christmas. It doesn't start with Jesus or Mary. It starts with an old man, an old priest. And it starts with God announcing to this old man and this old priest that he's going to keep his promises. Luke starts with God announcing that he's going to keep his promises. And Luke starts with God, in a sense, looking for someone to believe that he will keep his promises. It starts with a day in the life of old Zechariah, a Jewish priest, a faithful one. And he's seeking on this day to be faithful to what he knows about God, to the revelation of God that he has in the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. And as he seeks to be faithful in the simple duties and the wonderful duties that God has given him, he receives the surprise of his life. And he stumbles. We see Zechariah in only one chapter in Luke, but it is a whirlwind of drama for this man. One day, months before the birth of Jesus Christ, this old faithful priest enters the holy place of the temple to offer incense before the Lord according to the law of Moses. And there's a multitude praying outside waiting for him to complete his sacred duty. So he enters this chamber all alone and he lights the fire and sees the smoke that burns this sweet aroma as an offering to Yahweh on behalf of the nation. And then in the midst of his simple work, something happens that hasn't happened for centuries to his nation. An angel of Yahweh appears before him and speaks directly the words of the Lord. And Zechariah is terrified. Listen, this is an extraordinary miracle. And Zechariah had a particular context for, for being shaken by this miracle. It had been four centuries since God's chosen people, Israel, who had been formally ministered to for centuries by his prophets, by his judges, speaking God's voice to them. It had been four centuries of silence, and now Zechariah, for the first time in four centuries, a vantage point of, for us would have been, from, from, from where we sit today in 2020 to 200 years before America was founded, we think about 1620, the last time anybody got a word from the Lord or had a sense of his prophetic presence, as far as we can understand and the way they understood prophets, it had been four centuries. And now this angel of God speaks Yahweh's message to Zechariah. And this angel tells Zechariah that he and his wife, Elizabeth, are to have a son. And they're to name him John which means God is gracious and that this baby will herald the coming of the Messiah. But Zechariah stumbles at this point 
He doesn't believe. It might be hard for you to imagine that a man would see an angel, be terrified by the angel, and hear wonderful news. Hear wonderful news about what God is going to do. And he would respond, not just with amazement and awe, not just, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But he would say, no, this can't be in his heart. But that's what happens in his heart. He says, no, it's too much. I don't believe this. Behind his words, how can I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Is a heart that's saying, I don't believe you can do this, God. And the angel answers him quickly. After telling him the wonderful news about his son and how his son will be a forebearer of the Messiah and the Lord's coming to bless his people. And being faced with Zachariah's unbelief, the angel swiftly says, I am Gabriel. I don't believe that the angel was trying to boast in himself, but that should have gotten Zachariah's attention because Gabriel was the angel in the book of Daniel. One of the, one of the last books before God stopped talking to Israel through the prophets. Gabriel had come to tell Daniel while he was in exile that the Messiah would come. Gabriel even gave Daniel the time of the Messiah's coming. In Daniel 9, we've talked about that prophecy last year in our Advent series, this amazing prophecy where the angel tells Daniel the timing of the Messiah's appearing and being cut off by the people and the temple being destroyed. It's a stunning prophecy, but it came from this very angel some 500 years earlier. And this same angel comes to announce that the timing he talked about to Daniel some 500 years ago has come now. He's back to announce it is time. Zechariah is talking to an angel who knows what he's talking about. And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I have a lot of mercy, compassion for, empathy for, for Zachariah. I mean, could you imagine being Zachariah? Literally in seconds, you go from doing your job faithfully the best you can. I mean, the Bible says that he was a righteous man. Zachariah was a faithful man. And he's in the temple doing his job. And in, literally in seconds, he goes from his simple priestly duties, which are also, you know, I don't want to say simple as if they're not magnificent. I mean, he's in the temple burning incense 
but he's doing what he does. He's being faithful as he knows how. And suddenly he witnesses a stunning miracle with his own eyes, a real angel. He receives the greatest promise of his life and the greatest promise in the life of the nation of Israel. And then in a moment, he's sentenced to nine months of mutinous for unbelief. That's quite a journey in what was probably a few seconds. I could, in my emotions, if I were him, would barely be able to catch up with all that had happened. And after this, this cannot happen from his heart. He learns God is a God who cares about our faith. And he wants a response of faith and deserves and is worthy of a response of faith. And so he receives a discipline from the Lord. The Lord's loving, fatherly discipline. Nine months of humbling silence. Nine months to ponder this visitation in Gabriel's words. And watch as this baby grows in his wife's womb. And says, through every day that that womb gets bigger, God is faithful to his promises. And so this baby is born. He's about to be circumcised. With, and, and then this weird thing happens. There's an argument that happens. There's a fight between mom Elizabeth and the group of folks who are there, the family in attendance. They're saying his name's supposed to be Zachariah or something in our family. They're, they're all planning to name the baby after the dad, and she says, no, his name is supposed to be John. Zachariah had sign language or written to her, probably not signed, but he had written to her, said, hey, the angel said John. John's his name. John's his name. And she says, this baby's supposed to be John. God is gracious. And they said, John's not in our family. You can't do that. So they go to Zechariah, the dad, to rule on the matter. And he signs. He's able to make the final call. Follow Gabriel's instructions. His name is supposed to be John. And as soon as he says that, it's such a beautiful moment. He's given the honor of carrying out the duties that he was called to carry out nine months earlier. He names this baby John, as God has said. He's learned his lesson. God does not willingly afflict the sons of men. And as soon as Gabriel follows through, or as soon as Zechariah follows through on Gabriel's command, his name is John, his mouth opens. His time of discipline is over. And what happens next is beautiful. The next words that come out of his mouth are full of the Holy Spirit. This man who'd been disciplined for his unbelief, really, pretty sharply disciplined. The time of discipline is over. His mouth opens and outpours a heart full of the Holy Spirit. And the prophetic words of God come out of Zechariah's mouth. And this nation that has not heard prophetic instruction from a prophet in centuries finds that a river is springing open of prophetic utterance from this imperfect, unbelieving man disciplined by the Lord and brought to a place to bring amazing ministry to his people. And he pours out the words of the Holy Spirit and hears what he says Mute for nine months, okay? Can't talk for almost a year. Can't say a word. 
God's tough love. And then when the time for tough love is over, boom, full of fruit. And here's what he says. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And maybe then looking at Elizabeth and the little baby she's holding in her hands, he says to his child, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. It's time for a prophet again in Israel. Centuries of barrenness and dryness are over. It's time for a prophet again. And this little boy, his son, will be that prophet. But not like any other prophet before. Zechariah says, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Lord, glorify yourself through these words. Make them life to us again. Make them nourishment to us again. Make them lead our hearts out of darkness again today, this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Let's consider what Zechariah's prophecy says to us. First, it tells us of redemption. Zechariah begins blessing and praising God for something he's doing. What is God doing? Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Yahweh Zechariah says, is visiting his people. This word visited means to come to, to look at with deep concern. It's a word that would be used when a doctor would visit a patient. But Yahweh will not just visit his people. Zechariah says he will redeem his people. We talked about redeem weeks ago when we went over Ephesians 1. Redeem in its basic meaning involves the payment to buy something back that had been lost or enslaved, to deliver something or someone from great trouble. 
You could redeem a slave, remember, through the payment of a price. A man could redeem his own life if he was under a penalty for, for instance, an injury to someone else. The key concept, though, is there's a price paid to buy something back, to restore something, to free and liberate something. Someone. Someone. And this visiting and redeeming is done, Zechariah says, by a horn of salvation from the house of David. It's a weird symbol for us. We're not an agrarian society anymore. He talks about this horn of salvation from David's line. Zechariah is alluding here to the Davidic covenant. God made a promise to David in the Psalms in which he swore that a son of his would sit on the throne of Israel forever. He spoke about this in in both the Psalms and in the prophets. And this this promise that a Davidic-born son would rule over Israel forever becomes the messianic hope of the Jewish people at this time. They were waiting and looking for a Messiah who would rule them forever. They were looking for a Messiah when Jesus came. They were hoping in and seeking a Savior from the house of David. There were many places we could go in Scripture to to see why they had this hope. Most prominently, maybe especially for Christmas time, we could go to Isaiah 9, where Isaiah says about this son of David, he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And you can hear Isaiah's words and Zechariah's promise of this light shining over those dwelling in darkness. And Isaiah goes on. He says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called. Listen to his name. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. Did you hear those words for this child, this son given? They were written 722 years or so before Jesus as a baby breathed his first breath. This son of David is called Eternal Father, Mighty God. Isaiah goes on and says, Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. His rule goes everywhere. On the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Jewish people were waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. This son of David, descendant of the king, to be the ultimate king. And at the time Zechariah prophesied, David's throne has been vacant of a son for centuries. Herod was not a son of David, neither by blood and certainly not in his spirit. He was a cruel, horrible king, and he was a pawn of the Roman people. He leveraged and exploited himself out for their, prostituted himself to be an extension and leveraging of their power. But Zechariah sees a horn of salvation raised up from David's line. This horn is a weird thing to us. We don't look at horns and think, leadership, king, 
power. We might think power, and that's okay. That's where we should go because that's where we can kind of grab onto it. Think of an ox with its big horns coming out. Think of rams, those circular horns raised up to fight. That's exactly what they thought of. They thought of the horn of an ox or a ram raising itself up to show its mighty power. But why is this power, this mighty horn raised up? What's his goal? Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us. This horn will destroy Israel's enemies and save God's people. Now, Zechariah, maybe, reasonably, in his mind, he would think probably politically, nationally. He'd think in terms of Rome. He'd think of terms of the, the oppression that the nation was undergoing by Rome and by Herod, by extension. But in, in verses 76 and 78, we see something much more is at stake than political national liberation. Zechariah turns to the mission of his son John, and he says in 76 through 78, you, he's talking about John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. In what? Knowledge of, 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the overthrow of Rome, in the deposition of Herod, in national political liberation, no, he says to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Now this salvation, this redemption is taking a different shape. It's salvation secured through the forgiveness of Israel's sins. And it's motivated by the tender mercy of Yahweh. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And tender mercy, extending in forgiveness, not political freedom, not national liberation. That's the root of this salvation that David's heir brings. Now we have coming into view this picture of the ministry and the mission of someone we're very familiar with, right? beginning to look like our Lord. The great horn raised up from David's line displays God's mighty salvation in a way Zechariah may not have anticipated. In Mark 10, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to serve, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. That word ransom is related to that word redeem. It's the same concept. This son of David, this horn raised up, will secure Israel's salvation through forgiveness. And that's what Jesus proclaimed when he said, this is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The horn raised up of David will himself be the redemption price paid for the forgiveness of sins. 
And his redemption, verse 71, will affect something. It will affect, in verse 71, the salvation from our enemies. Our enemies. And this begs the question, who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? That's hard for us. We might have some enemies at work and at home. But we're not ruled by Rome. We're not ruled by Herod. We don't see people ransacking our houses for what they want or taking our money in taxes or putting us in prison for trying to worship like some people do. And Zechariah likely saw enemies in Herod and in Rome, like we said. But these weren't the enemies Zechariah needs saving from. But God promises to save us from our enemies. Who are our enemies? Who are your enemies? Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, he says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood. He says our worst enemies are spiritual. They're demonic forces, they're principalities, they're powers, they're Satan. There's his angelic hosts. There's the world system around us that denies God and seduces us to its own wills. But our deepest enemy, our deepest enemy is our own hearts. And this is why the security, the salvation, the liberation from our enemies has to come through forgiveness. Do you see that? It doesn't come through the overthrow of Rome or Herod. It comes through God dealing with our greatest enemy, which is our own sinful heart. For Israel, this was true as well. Listen, it was never because of Rome and their power, it was never because of the other conquering nations, whether it was the Chaldeans or the, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians. It was never because of them that Israel was ever in bondage to them. Egypt is harder to understand. I, I, I'm talking about since Israel was formed as a nation. And since God envisioned Israel's plan to be a, a, a nation in peace with him in the land of milk and honey. Their conquest, their bondage was never because of the nations that conquered them. It was always because of her sin. It was always because she refused God. She refused to keep the covenant with Yahweh that Moses had brought to them, that God handed her over to her enemies. That's why they were under Rome. That's why they were in Herod's hands. But that physical, political bondage... It, it's a picture of a deeper bondage. Our sin makes us captive. Not just to political oppression, it's far worse. Sin makes us captive to sin. Sin makes us slaves to itself. Years after Zacharias saw Gabriel, in the heart of Jesus' ministry, close to the apex of his feuds with the Pharisees and his arguments with the religious leaders of his day, our Lord in this dramatic moment says to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Apart from Christ, mankind has been, as Paul says in Romans 7, 14, sold as slaves to sin. We talked last week of this principle in Scripture, especially in Romans 1, that proclaims that, that our rejection of God results in this awful destiny for mankind. It results in God justly judging us by handing us over to our sinful desires. In a sense, because we reject God's rule over us, sin has this right to rule over our lives. And so apart from Christ, we are, Jesus says, slaves to sin. And all our greed, all our sexual morality, all our laziness, all our lust for money, all our proneness to gossip, our unforgiveness, our bitterness, our, our hating, our condescending mocking, our, our coldness, our fighting, our tearing down one another, it, it's all enslavement for saying to God, we don't want you to be our God. And it's this enemy, this rejection of God, and all the enslavement that is, ensues that Christ came to destroy and to defeat through the power of his forgiveness. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. And then he says this, now the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Christ came to free us from this enemy. And this is exactly what he does for us. He pays our debt forever with his infinitely worthy blood. And the result is that not only are you forgiven, but you are freed from slavery to sin. It, it no longer has a right to rule your life. Your debt is paid. And God no longer hands you over to more sin and judgment for your rejection of him because it's all been forgiven. It's all been paid for in his son. And instead, your sin already paid for by Christ, even the sins you struggle with now. This is very hard to believe, very hard to understand the greatness of God's compassion in this. This is probably what Zechariah had a hard time believing as well as he heard this great news from God. Your struggles, your sins, your failures, because of Jesus Christ, they now elicit his patience, his mercy, his continual forgiveness. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will heal you. He will forgive you again and again. He will have patience with you. Because Christ has taken away every reason why he wouldn't. And so your bondage to sin is over. You will still struggle with it. You will still have to battle with it. But its right to rule you is over. That's the good news. 
forgiveness, and not just forgiveness, but a new life. A new life. This is also in the song that Zechariah sings. Transformation. In verse 74 and 75, Zechariah tells us that God has visited us and redeemed us and saved us from our enemies to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Do you see what happened to those who are redeemed? They're transformed. They're empowered to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah is describing a transformation. He's describing new life. He's describing a new creation. He's describing hearts made new by Christ. John Piper, talking about this passage, he says, in verses 74-75 that we just talked about, God's aim in raising a horn of salvation is not merely to liberate an oppressed people, but to create a holy and righteous people who live in no fear because they trust him. And then he says, this visitation and redemption of God is going to mean profound spiritual transformation. The goal of our salvation is not only forgiveness, but the power to live a new life, a life of love. Remember, having paid for our sins, God is justly able to legally release us from sin's dominion. Some of you are battling hard. Some of you are aware of a lot of felt bondage. And I'm asking you to believe something powerfully difficult for you, which is that Christ liberates you. He's ended sin's ability to dominate your life. I'm going by what Jesus says and his promises are, not by our experience. And listen, the root of this is so beautiful. The root of this liberation is in verse 75. The tender mercy of our God. This is strength for us to look at God and think, you are tender and merciful with me. And your tenderness and your mercy, it's patient with me. It gives me strength that I don't deserve. It lifts me up when I've fallen down. It forgives me and cleans me again and again and again because you're a tender and merciful God. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, he gives light to those who sit in darkness. 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, Zechariah says he guides our feet in the way of peace. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, we are able to walk in holiness and righteousness before him without fear. In words a lot like Zechariah's, Paul describes in Ephesians 4, the new creation we become in Christ. He says this, he says, the new heart that God's given you is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what his tender mercy does. It gives us a new heart. It makes us new with his very life inside us. 
I'm sorry it's getting cold, guys. Lord, help me speed up. <laughs> I'm praying for a little grace to see what I can exercise from this message to get you guys warm quicker. I, I know many of you have heard this before, but it's good to hear good things again. One day during my 21st year of life, I was in my 20s, I believe, I read something by C.S. Lewis that blew the doors off of my whole experience of God. C.S. Lewis wrote this, the Christian life, or the Christian, the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope by being good to please God if there is one. Or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. And this was the sentence that just exploded my life. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Did you hear that? The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Is there better news possible in the universe? I had spent so many years under the burden of condemnation. I, I wished I could want God. I wished I could serve God. I wished I could love God, but I could not. Christianity to me was, a, was a, a God with holy laws that were good and pure that I could agree with, but I could not keep. Jesus' death for sinners seemed like a beautiful idea, but I could not understand if it was only for good people how I could get it. Because I felt I was a horrible person who could not be good enough for Christ. That was truer than I knew. But then I read that God does not love us because we're good, but that he will make us good because he loves us. And I thought, if this is Christianity, this is so different than I thought. Was this salvation? To be able to love and serve God in righteousness and in holiness without fear? But how? What? What? How do you get this? And a few days later, my father told me this was a free gift, this salvation. He didn't use these words, but he, he might have if he'd seen Zachariah's prayer that day. It came from the tender mercy of God. It was a free gift to be received by faith. And I was given grace to believe him that day, and I, I saw what I'd never seen before. Christ had borne all of my sins, past, present, and future. He was mine and I was his, and at the same moment, I found a new power in my heart. To want him. Not just to want him, but to follow him. So imperfectly. <laughs> so imperfectly. But truly. For the first time in my life, I had real joy and hope. I couldn't believe it. And I had begun to experience what Zechariah meant when he said, the Lord has saved us from our enemies. And he's granted us 
to be delivered from the hand of our enemies, that we might serve him without fear and holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And this is what Paul meant when he sang in his letter, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I wonder if Zechariah knew how great his song was. I don't think he quite knew how amazing the salvation that was coming was. But his words correlate with everything that Jesus did and everything that we know since. Our Lord came to save us from our enemies and to grant us that we might serve him without fear. So what do we do with all this? The first thing I want to say is believe. Believe for the first time today or believe for the 5,000th time today. In his first response to the promise of God, Zechariah failed to believe what God had promised. And man, it significantly hampered his experience and his ability to experience God with others. But listen, his believing did not make it true or not true. His lack of trust did not cancel the new life growing in Elizabeth's womb. Your believing or not believe won't make any, any, Jesus any less great. And if you're a Christian, your unbelief won't make his grace stop. But your experience of it will be hampered deeply. And, and so I, I just want to appeal to you to, to not believe simply in your experience. To not look down in your heart to decide who God is and what he's done for you. To not look at your past to say and your fears about the future to say who God is and what he will be for you. Because folks, if you have truly come to Jesus Christ and trusted him for the free gift of his salvation, your freedom from sin's bondage is real. Whether you feel it or not, your freedom to walk without being dominated. I don't mean to walk perfectly yet, but without being dominated and captive to sin is over. He is the Savior who saves you from your enemies. He is the Redeemer who buys you back. That's what he does. That's what Zechariah is saying. I think we look at these, these, these songs sometimes and we've seen them and it's Bible talk and it's Bible words, it's Bible message, and we just forget the basic thing they're saying, which is that God frees you. God, not you, saves you. God, not you, frees you. And it just drives by like cars on this street. And I think we start to fail at the first with our most important job, which is to believe what God is saying. It is through faith that we experience what God gives. And so God calls you to do what Zechariah didn't, which is to not say to him, you can't do this, but to believe these truths. And though sin and the devil will resist you, you are to stand in the truth of what God has said to you through Christ and who you are in him. He did not forgive you so you would be a slave any longer. His tender mercy is powerful. His tender mercy is powerful. You are a new creation. 
united to the very person of Jesus Christ who gives his life and strength to you. And by his power, he says, you are able to overcome and say with Paul, I I can, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And, And I know for so many of us, our experience is different than that. We're so aware, I'm so aware of failing, but I I just believe the Lord would have us pivot. And before we do anything to improve our lives and to be more perfect and to do good things that are wise, to change and to repent and to put new habits in our life, etc., etc., we would just start with this again. Will you believe that through his tender mercy, because he has saved you, because he has redeemed you, will you believe that it is true? And not tell him that it is not. Which brings me to my my second thing, which is to remember that this walk of righteousness and holiness, it's a walk with him. In other words, it's not independent of, you don't get your little righteousness and holiness power and walk off and say, God, I'm going to be perfect now. No. Do you know what true holiness is? Do you know what true righteousness is? as the Bible defines it? It's love. It's loving God with all of your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And loving your neighbors, yourself. This walk of righteousness and holiness that you're free to walk is a walk of a relationship with God. And so we walk in freedom as we walk with him. as we walk in a relationship of trust every day with him. I I didn't understand this very well when I first became a Christian. I thought God's over on that side. I'm over on this side. He's forgiven me. Now my job is to walk right and do all the right things. And he'll be over there. And I was like, no, it's, it's like breathing. It's like breathing. You breathe in your need for him. You breathe in your dependence on him. You breathe in your trust for him. And you, you exhale fruit. I think that's why we breathe every... I mean, God could have set up so we breathe once a day, right? The Holy Spirit called. It's the pneuma. It's the breath of God. I think he made us... Everything's a metaphor. Everything he created is a metaphor. And I think breathing is to remind us we need him every moment. One writer puts it this way. The enabling power to live the Christian life comes as a result of our vital or living union with him. All believers are spiritually united to Christ in such a way that our spiritual life comes from him. And he means all the time, throughout the day, moment by moment, struggle by struggle, trial by trial, prayer by prayer, unceasing prayer, Paul says. Paul doesn't mean you have to get on your knees for 24 hours a day. He means you live with this sense constantly that you're with God, you have God, and you need him, and he's here. Righteousness and holiness, this walk is a relationship. That's why we're called to stay near Jesus. That's why it's so crucial to be fueled by means of grace like his words. Praying to him. Being with other people who are on fire with him. Do you ever notice that? You, you get near someone who, who's walking with Christ and they're walking in joy and they're walking in truth and you go have coffee with him, you talk with him, you don't go home the same. Just like you you sometimes don't get out of a Bible study the same or a quiet time the same. You've gotten near Jesus. 
you've gotten your Christ in them, and now it's God on you. And that happens through prayer, through study of his word, through singing his songs, through turning off our phones and turning off Netflix and making time for him, making time for his people, practicing these means of grace. They're not checklists. They're ways of getting closer to him and enjoying him and breathing him in. They're ways of lifting up the sails in the boat of our faith so that his Holy Spirit can blow. Listen, his Holy Spirit is blowing. It's always blowing. His power is always there. But we're called to lift up sails to catch it. That's prayer. That's what that's about. That's what Bible study is about. That's what being with his people is about. It's not earning. It's not checking off a box. It's lifting up a sail to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. And when we don't do those things, we're like a boat that just sits in the sea and goes nowhere. We're not saved by those things, but we experience God through making room for him in our lives. And that's not what Apple and Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter and President Trump or anybody else wants you doing. They want you just worked up and freaked out and paying attention and do, 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 do. I'm not trying to get political here. I mean, you could say the same thing about some, you know, whoever on the other side. I, I, I just mean the world is constantly grabbing you. It's saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, check with me, check with me, check with me all the time. And what it's doing is it's, and you can have any movie you want, anytime you want, any old series you saw, Happy Days reruns from the 70s or MASH from the 80s or Cheers from the 90s or whatever, The Office. I mean, it's just there for us. Immediate gratification. None of it, none of it gives a, a hill of beans about your eternal soul. None of it. I'm not saying you can't have Netflix or don't ever watch these shows. I'm just saying... Don't let it starve you and steal you from him and his people and his word and prayer. Because your walk with God and righteousness and holiness is a walk with him. With him. I've got more, but we're going to stop here. And I just want to invite you to spend some time just asking the Lord, Lord, help me believe today again. And help me be near you, stay near you, to experience the joy that Zachariah experienced. Lord, help me believe you and help me make room for you. Help me trust you, walk with you. And where there are places in my life where I've crowded you out, would you please help me through the power of your Holy Spirit to crowd those things out. Whether it's my phone, maybe even a relationship. Maybe a besetting sin that's really, really got you locked in right now. Anger, unforgiveness, whatever it might be. Ask the Lord today. Help me believe you for this, this liberation that you promised through the horn of David. And let's just sing one more song. Could I ask Jesse and 
Emma to come up.